Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Dave Hendon. And I'm Michael McMullen. Welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. We're recording this on the morning of the World Championship Final. And uh, Mark Selby and Sean Murphy, are, as everyone knows, I'm sure, are going to contest the final. Uh, you know, you go back, well, how, how far should you go back? 25 years. On a, on a Sunday, they would have been probably Willie Thorne's Leicester, those two, as teenagers, playing, mm. in some, playing in some junior event, quite possibly playing each other in the final, dreaming of... A day like today, of course, they've both been world champion already. They've both reached the top of the game. But here they are again. And uh, here we are after two weeks of, well, I suppose, actually much longer with the qualifiers. Mm. Finally, we finally we know who's going to contest the most important match in the game. Yeah. And I mean, last night really looked like it had the potential to be one of those epic crucible nights. It was 15 years ago to the day, actually, that we turned up for the uh, evening session at the crucible with a potential 13 frames left in the final between Dot and Ebden. And uh, we ended up playing most of them and it didn't finish till nearly one in the morning. We could have had 13 frames across the two finishes last night. In the end, it went completely the other way. But it was so similar to 2005, wasn't it? 12-all between Murphy and Ebden going into the last session of the semi-final. And Murphy just comes out and reels off five frames and that's it. And exactly the same thing happened 16 years on. And it happened with Murphy playing very much the same way he did way back then. Yeah, I mean the the semi-finals. I mean we we previewed them the, a few days ago, and uh, they sort of they're, they're a drama in their own right, aren't they? They're sort of a, almost a torment in their own right because they're mm. so long. I mean, you know, we had the discussion: are they too long? And that's been sort of set aside, I think. But yeah, when you get down to the last day, you know, we obviously we also memories of last year as well. You're kind of thinking, what's going to happen? Um, let's talk about what did happen then. Let's take them each uh, at a time. Uh, Sean Murphy, Kyron Wilson, um, Kyron. I think well, he's already home, I'm sure. Goes home very disappointed. Mm. Um, he was in control, 10-4. I mean, that first session, he made three centuries, just played brilliantly. But it's still a long way to go, isn't it? You know, 6-2 up, you think, he's played so well, and we can't lose this. But, you know, there's still a long way to go. The key shot of the match, and possibly, we'll see what happens, possibly the whole tournament, was that black that Sean Murphy potted in frame 20. Um, if he misses it, it, it and leaves it, it's 12-8, then you think, 
his car and regroups at the interval quite possibly wins. But he didn't. He went for it. He got it. 11-9, turned the match on its head. And if Sean Murphy's world champion on Monday night, that's I think that's the shot we're going to look back on, isn't it? Yeah, and I would also point equally to the end of the second session on Friday afternoon when uh, Wilson had been 10-4 up. He'd had a, a chance early in the next frame, didn't make much from it and ended up losing it. So that's 10-5. That's one chance he's missed to stretch his lead. And then in the last of the session, he still got a chance to go in 11-5 up. And you'd be absolutely delighted with that. He'd have won the session and built on the big lead he'd given himself. But 46-0 up, needlessly really snookers himself on a red that he's left over the middle, has to play safe, leaves a really, really tough red. And Murphy, classic 2005 style, knocks it in. And an even better shot than that was the yellow with the rest. Yeah. Goes on from there to make the 86 and closes to 10-6. So I would say that was just as important. But both of those things were pointed to there really tell the story of the match. Wilson was in control. He had many, many chances to extend that control to a point where it was starting to look almost unassailable, didn't take any of them ultimately, and paid the price because, you know, we, we were talking the other day, are these semi-finals too long? And I said, definitely not. I think you more or less agreed. Over the four sessions, you get the chance for all these stories to develop, but you, but you don't have quite as much in a three-session match. And why on earth would you want to change a format that has given us the yeah. last day of the semi-finals drama that we've seen now two years in a row? Well, that's the payoff for the Thursday. The Thursday is quite a non-event of a day. I agree yeah. with that. But yeah. the, the reward is the Saturday you get. Uh, now, obviously, they, they can finish early, and they have done in the past. But in recent years, we seem to get a lot of these close. As I say, they're sort of dramas in their own right. Um, and more than ever at the World Championship, it's about actually, it's about the people as much as the snooker. It's, mm. I love watching the players in these long matches how the emotions shift. We'll come on to Bingham later, you know, how he went from sort of top of the world to despair in that match. Um, but Kyron Wilson didn't give much away. Murphy, on the other hand, and then this is another reason that he won it. He clearly made a decision at one point. I am going to revert to the Sean Murphy 2005. I'm going to play as if I am just new on the scene with no men mental scars, which is very difficult to do when you actually have them. Uh, to me, I think, and I said this on the commentary, so much of his run this year is about the crowds coming back. He has spent a year a very lonely year on the circuit. Not not a lot of fun away from home. You know, people maybe don't realise he's been sort of... You talk about Milton Keynes. He's been there between tournaments mm. on his on his own. No one to talk to, no one around. There was one tournament where he, he had... Um, was it tendonitis or something? He couldn't walk for like three days in one of them. No fun at all, crawling to the bathroom, all that stuff, away from his kids and, and his wife. If he goes home, he can't practice. Horrible year for him. And I know it's been a horrible year for a lot of people. I know that. But we're just talking about Sean Murphy at the moment. OK, suddenly the crowds are back and he's always kind of reveled in that. Of course he has. It's like you're being noticed again. And it's a sign, you know, that things are kind of maybe getting back to normal. Uh, and suddenly he responds to that. He's getting involved with them. He's giving it the fist. He's giving it all of that. And that has been part of it. Whereas Kyron, maybe that's not his personality. I mean, he didn't seem that impressed with it. He actually said, I didn't, I didn't seem impressed with it, although he had just lost in the World Championship semi-final. Um, but that was definitely part of it for me. Murphy kind of reveling in, in the crowd being back. Yeah, he's the only player I can ever remember asking, well, stopping a maximum attempt to ask for mm. the curtain to be raised so that the people can see it on the other side of the arena. That just underlines so much what you're saying there. And it was such a big factor in 2005 because I think he just moved to Yorkshire at the time and he really played that up with the crowds because yeah. I know the crowds come from everywhere, but still a lot of the people there are from the local area. And they really took to him as one of their own, even though he'd been 
he wasn't really. I mean, he wasn't originally a Yorkshireman. He was just living in the area at the time. And he fed off that. He said it again uh, after the match last night. He said that the crowd had been a massive difference. He described them as his 12th man. And he talked about how everyone says you've really got to enjoy it out there. And he hasn't enjoyed it all season. As I say, as, as you, you, you pointed out there, when he did get back, he wasn't able to practice. But also even coming back uh, from the UK to Ireland at the moment is very, very difficult. I know that from the couple of times I've been over for various events. You know, there are all sorts of restrictions and all sorts of hoops you have to jump through. And of course, you can't do that if you then have to go back and play in another tournament the following week anyway. So what a difficult season it's been for him in that sense. It's shown in his results, but it's also shown in, in what he's done now over the last week or so. And th there was a feeling early on in the match, well, maybe beating Trump was his final, to use that old cliche. It certainly <laughs> didn't turn out to be in the end. Now he's playing in a real final. Karen Wilson, on, the, on all that sort of stuff, he said he called it silly and theatrical. Um, theatrical is an interesting word. We're at the Crucible Theatre. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, now, as I say, I, I always mitigate comments from the, the player who's lost after three days and four sessions. We had it last year with Mark Selby. Selby, yeah. Um, and we had it, we'll come on to Bingham as well later. Um, so I, I, I don't mind bad losers. If you've, if you've played your heart out for three days and, and you're gutted, I, I, I mean, why wouldn't you be? But, but what a sort of more objective reaction... Uh, what did you make of that? What the, the sort of the, the getting involved stuff, I suppose? Well, all the fist pumping. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, I thought it was absolutely fine. I mean, thank goodness he never played Peter Ebden in a big match at the Crucible <laughs> back yeah. in the day, you know. I mean, he <clears> used to take it to 100 times that level. Look, it, it's, it means a lot to everyone. You know, it means a massive amount to them. And, you know, you've got to react in the way that feels right to you. I don't think it was contrived. I don't think it was preconceived. I think he was glad to get the crowd involved. But Well, it was... It was kind of out of character in a way. He's not associated with that, is he, Sean, really? Yeah. And he didn't know he was going to pop that black. None of us yeah. really expected he was going to. And it was a natural reaction at the end of it. So I didn't think there was any great issue. And to be fair to Kyron, he didn't condemn him for it. You know, he, he wasn't saying... In fact, he went out of his way at the end to say, I'm not saying that was what made the difference. And to be honest, if it was what made the difference, it was only because Kyron let it. And he shouldn't have. Yeah, I mean, the way Sean Murphy played last night, you know, Kyron did get in a few times, but he made a few mistakes. But at that level, you know, World Championship semi-final last session, you know, you couldn't you couldn't miss the balls he missed. You couldn't make the mistakes he made. Murphy turned it on very impressively. And, of course, if he wins the title, it's a record, isn't it, for the gap between first yeah. and second win, 16 years. I mean, that's... You only really notice it when you look at the role of honour. You see all the names in between. Obviously, he's been in a couple of finals in that time, but that would be something, wouldn't it, if he, if he won it 16 years after first winning it? Tony Blair has won a general election more recently than Sean Murphy has won the World Championship. <laughs> you know, Now, only by wow. a few days, but yeah. nevertheless. The thing is, as well, I was just thinking about it. The vast majority of players who have won at the Crucible for the first time have never won it again. So look, look at the list of players who have gone back and won it. Davis, Hendry, Higgins, Williams, O'Sullivan, Selby. That's the category Sean Murphy now has a chance to put himself in. And he's so aware of the history of the game and his standing within it. That's going to mean a huge amount to him. I was even thinking of players who've been in four finals. Now, obviously, all of those guys have. Other than that, you've got Jimmy White. And I think that's it. And so I think he's only the eighth player, unless you can think of someone else, who's been in this many world finals. And we were talking earlier, weren't we, about the possibility of Bingham becoming a two-time world champion before the likes of Trump and Robertson. Well, Murphy might now get there yeah. before those guys. And it's funny, you know, I think over the last couple of years, Murphy has become a very underrated player. I think people have perhaps 
forgotten just how good he is. The problem for him is he hasn't done it often enough. And when he's not on his absolute top form, he is more vulnerable. He maybe doesn't have the other side of the game to fall back on to the extent that other players do. But those of us who have been watching the game a long time and have taken it all in know that when he plays well, he is capable of doing anything against anybody. And he certainly reminded us of that last night. He's won more titles, I think, than people realise. He's won a few that are maybe, to use a sort of cliche, under the radar a little bit, or some tournaments that have been discontinued. For example, he won that tournament at the Brazil Masters, you know, which yeah. was the first event in South America. You know, he's won the Premier League. But in terms of, you know, we sort of, we have our sort of way of categorising and ranking titles, obviously, something, you know, that he's used. He is of the generation. I was thinking about this. You have the class of 92, OK, Higgins, O'Sullivan, Williams. You have the players just after them, the Matthew Stevens, Paul Hunter, Graham Dots. And then the sort of the class of the late 90s. And the three star pupils there are Mark Selby, Sean Murphy and Neil Robertson. Now, Selby and Robertson have pulled away, haven't they? they you know, I think uh, Robertson 20 ranking titles, Selby 19 as it stands, Sean Murphy 9. So on that metric, I mean, nine's great, by the way. Nine, sure. Win nine yeah. ranking titles is great. But com- we're, we're comparing him to those two. He's just fallen behind a little bit. But if he won another world title, you know, obviously he goes ahead of Robertson on that list. Um, and he's one behind Selby. So I suppose it depends how you want to rate the players, but I'm just sort of doing it on, on the basis of, you know, just a career titles between those three. In recent years, maybe he hasn't been as consistent winner as those two. Yeah. You're not basing it on triple crown titles then, no? Well, you see, <laughs> well you see, now you see, I was going to... I was going to leave it because there was an article this week that I, that I sent you about that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah I was yeah. not going to bring it up, but we might return to that. Yeah, as you, you brought, as you know, as you brought it up. Well, we I, well to, to be fair, even if you hadn't, you knew I would. So you were safe <laughs> on that score. Yes. Anyway, continue. Yeah. Well, I mean, can we, can we talk about Wilson, actually, as well and where this leaves him now? Because this is the first time he's got serious crucible scar tissue. I mean, I know he lost the final last year, but he lost it heavily. It wasn't really as if it was close or anything. Yes, he had a chance maybe to put O'Sullivan under pressure in the second session and didn't take it. But in the end, he was beaten quite comfortably. This is the first time now that something like this has happened to him at the Crucible. And he's in danger of becoming a Barry Hawkins or a Matthew Stevens, a player who keeps doing well at the Crucible, but never actually wins the title. And the number of times you get close to it, the more likely it is you're going to have a few experiences like this that are going to trouble you and are going to come into your head when you go back there and try to win it the following year. So that's what we have to bear in mind for him now. Murphy has spoken about this, and I heard you alluding to it on the TV last night. When he won it in 05, he had none of that. Yes, he'd had a close defeat against Ken Doherty a couple of years earlier, but it wasn't as if he was going there as a contender to win the championship. And that was only in the first round anyway. So he didn't have any of that scar tissue. That's the time to win a world title when you haven't had these experiences and you don't know what the Crucible can do to you. Karen Wilson now knows better than ever before what the Crucible can do. And that's a hurdle he's going to have to overcome now. I can't believe I've heard it again in the last few days, people saying Karen Wilson will definitely win the world championship. I mean, do people never learn? I mean, well, it's Jimmy, White's yeah. bir- it's Jimmy White's birthday. That's all it I'll is. say about it. I'll, yeah, say exactly. t- I'll say two things. I'll say two things. Yeah. We'll move on to Mark Selby. The first is on Karen. I think maybe we should retire this phrase, Crucible player, because really what that means is he, that you win matches at the Crucible, but actually winning the tournament at the Crucible is more mm. important. Mm. And Sean Murphy's been inconsistent there over the years, but he has a chance to be a, a double world champion, which trumps any sort of getting to semi-finals, really. You know, let's be honest. The other thing I would Sorry. say, the other thing I would say is I was thinking about this. When he won it in 2005, there was very much a kind of festival atmosphere because it was the last year of Embassy's sponsorship yeah. of the World Championship. They brought all the 
Um, well, most of the living world champions came out as a parade before the final started. Sean and Matthew Stevens got involved in that. It was a real big occasion. It was felt an even bigger occasion than normal. Now, this year, of course, it's going to be, well, we'll see how full it is, but the idea is it's going to be a full house, certainly on the last night. Um, that's a massive thing. You know, think of how we all felt a year ago when the tournament was called off and we didn't know if it would be on at all last year. Um, now suddenly, I mean, the atmosphere has been building, you know, every day there. It was really good yesterday. It'll be really good the next two days. And, you know, that kind of, I don't know, that to me, that sort of favours him as a, for the reasons I've already stated. So, yeah, it'll be interesting if you want it again. It's kind of another special year. It's not quite, you know, a normal year at the Crucible. Anyway, so that's Sean. Mark Selby um, has, has now the distinction, the almanac. Chris Downer will be already, I'm sure, getting ready to, to update the almanac with the first semi-final to run into an extra session. Now, here's a little, you only get this on this podcast because, because no one else cares, right? Mm-hmm. It's not the first semi-final to have five sessions because in the old days they were five sessions. Yes, um, yeah, it, yeah. It went best to thirty-five. In that, I mean, obviously the pace of play, I guess, was was maybe a bit slower then. But anyway, um, so but he he ran into an extra session in the gap between, and it was only three hours. Of course, they didn't know how long it would be because they didn't know how long the Murphy Wilson session would be. Um, he must have thought of last year. Uh, it's sixteen fourteen, loses seventeen sixteen. He was sixteen fourteen this year in broke down. Bingham knocks in a fantastic red, makes an 85 or whatever it was. And, you know, the, and could have gone 16 inch, definitely. In the end, once it gets to the colours, there's probably no one better than Selby to win a frame. Um, but, well, pick the bones out of that match. <laughs> yeah, it was 85, actually, uh, that Bingham made. And, of course, he was going to put those thoughts in his head. You talk, by the way, about how in the early days of the Crucible, it was five session semi-finals. Mm. I mean, in the pre-Crucible days, if you go way back, I mean, the semis probably lasted five weeks they used yeah. to play for so long. But um, t- to me, actually, early on in the final session, I just thought Selby looked a bit tired. Now, obviously, he was he had enough energy to see it through, but I was starting to... I wonder why that was. <laughs> yeah, well, indeed. <laughs> but um, I was starting to favour Bingham at that stage. And, of course, Bingham had been battle-hardened, hadn't he, by the earlier rounds. He'd had a couple of deciders along the way. He'd almost gone out in the first round, where Selby had just breezed through. And we've seen it so many times. It's not the way to do it. We've seen it with Neil Robertson. Famously, the classic example of it for me was John Higgins in 2002. I think he'd lost something like three frames in the first two rounds. And then when he was put under it a bit in the quarterfinals, he wasn't battle-hardened enough to see it through against Matthew Stevens. So I don't think that helped Selby, but it was just towards the end, it was starting to feel again like a match that Selby was going to win, a four-session match. that It's like he has some magic formula. It's like there's some secret he's not telling us about how to get through and win these four-session matches and he found it again. And Bingham at the end just looked so deflated and, and so disappointed that he'd battled so hard and had come so close to getting to another um, world final. But we talk about players taking the positives. He has so many to take now. He's back in the top 16. He's got 100,000 ranking points that will stay on for two years. So that gives him a solid foundation to build on. And he's had his second best world championship just a few weeks before his 45th birthday. He's reminded us again what a good player he is. And uh, he'll have a lot of good stuff to take away from it. I guess ultimately he didn't have the answer to Selby's style of play, mode of play, whatever you want to call it. But what was interesting was, and, and we'll come to the sort of criticism, we had an email, it's only just come in, so I haven't had a chance to read it properly, but someone who was quite anti-Selby. Um, I'll read that in a minute. But it's interesting, the first session of the final, of the tournament, he really sort of went negative. He got nothing out of it, really. It was mm. the, third, the third session which he lost 6-2. 
Um, he seemed to, again, this is what's fascinating about snooker full stop, but certainly the crucible, just watching the body language. Bingham comes out for that session, smiling, getting the crowd on his side, as he had done the whole match, looking like he was enjoying it thoroughly. Selby came out, you know, the jester from Leicester and all that, and all that stuff. Not a flicker of a smile all night. Looked really kind of intense all night. Got into his own head, I think, all night. Uh, ground himself down. This is the thing I think people make the mistake with. It's not. It's not necessarily that he grinds the. He grinds himself down, Marcelby sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And in that session, it was a classic trying not to lose session because he's resuming with a lead. Oh, I've got a nurse to lead, and and you know he he won two frames in that session. He got warm for 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 taking too long by the referee and all the rest of it. Um, but ultimately, you know, you've got to, it's the job of the opponent to find an answer to that. And you go back, you know, forty years, the real kind of hard men, the Thorburns, Griffiths, Taylor, indeed Steve Davis. You know, this is how snooker was then. And you, a lot of the sort of the more fluent players couldn't find an answer to it. And ultimately, Bingham, even though he made some great breaks, I mean, he scored so heavily through the tournament. In those sort of frames, he just couldn't quite couldn't quite compete. Maybe. He acknowledged that during the championship, I think it might have been after the McGill match, that that's his game. It's all about scoring and he yeah. has to dictate the game in that way. So he was almost doing Selby's team talk for him, as they say. Got to pick up on a couple of things about that match, actually. You mentioned the Almanac there. Now, when we were talking about the Almanac at the start of the championship and some of the strange things that are in it, one of the things I raised was, isn't there a section for matches where it's been the same score two frames in a row in a match and I think it maybe it only happened once before well it happened again in this match because there were two frames yeah. in a row that Selby won 134 points to nil so Chris will be getting to work on that the other thing of course and you raised it there the referee now I've got to admit I don't know exactly what the protocol is here and I'm not sure if you do either but let's see so Selby's been asked to speed things up a bit but what happens if he doesn't what happens <laughs> if he takes another two minutes and then continues going on from there. I mean, is, is there a formal sanction in place? Yeah, I think, I think I'm right in saying that the referee has discretion to issue a warning for, it's a sort of catch-all, let's say, on gentlemanly conduct. And then there are, you know, you can eventually award a frame against him if it comes to it. But um, is anyone really going to do that? Well, I, mean, I thought it was anyone? a big call. I thought it was a big call from Ben Williams. It's his first World Championship semi-final. The spotlight, yeah. the spotlight is on him. And I actually thought fair play to him that he had the, the guts to do it. Well, you know, you could argue if he was right or not, that's a different argument. But actually, most referees, I think, have, have kind of let that sort of stuff go. I mean, Selby took a famous league six minutes on a shot in Ireland. Nothing mm. was said. Um, I think there was a there was a case to, to actually step in there and say, you know, can we speed this up a bit? Because they were just sort of playing safeties, really. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I think ultimately you can... I mean, referees listening can tell us, but I think ultimately, you, if it escalates, you can essentially award a frame to his opponent. That would be, I mean, you were right. I mean, it was a big call. We don't see that very often. And to do it in a world semi-final when you've never refereed a match at that level before was a massive call. But actually taking a frame off a player in a world semi-final. Well, that, it's, unli- uh, it's an yeah. unlikely scenario, but, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah, well, mm. I mean, there were a couple of other shots where he did take a long time. Bingham's average shot time was, I think, longer in the match, actually, mm. in the end. Mm. Um, but I suppose he would argue he got sort of dragged into it. The one thing that I... We'll talk about the criticism of Selby in a moment. I didn't mind him celebrating at the end. Apparently, he was criticised on the BBC for that. Now, I, did, I was commentating on Eurosport, so I've got no idea what was said. Um, but the one thing that I thought was odd was that, that sort of when he had that fluke um, and he sort of... Extraordinary reaction, as if to say it's the first bit of yeah. luck I've ever had in yeah. my life. 
I mean, listen, it's an, they're down there in the moment, okay? We're all commentating and commenting from afar. They're living it emotionally. So it's very easy to sort of pick faults and say, oh, that shouldn't have happened. It was, a, it was an instinctive reaction. I just thought it looked a bit silly, really. Um, and it's like Bingham actually said after, you know, it's like players sort of don't, seem to don't notice their own lucky little nudges, flicks here and there. Mm. Bingham had had a good run, it's got to be said. Uh, but that was a, that was a kind of odd reaction, having shown no emotion, as I say, on the on the on the previous evening. Um, uh, what was the other thing I was going to say there? We're going to uh, talk about the criticism of them in this email. Yeah. That okay. Well, let's let's look at the email. And as I say, it's, now it's from Richard Barcy. Bassy. Um, he's only come in like half an hour ago, so I haven't had a chance to. It's quite long, so I'm going to have to cut it down, Richard. I'm afraid. Um, he said he said I'm enjoying listening through a few late at night. So that seems to be the time to listen to them. Uh, so what, what does he say? What does he say? Selby did to Bingham basically what he did to poor Marco Fu in 2016, the match that first turned me properly against Selby. I thought there was a significant element of gamesmanship to the way he carried on in quite a few frames in the last two sessions of that match where Fu was outplaying him, as was Bingham after going 13-11 up. I'm no qualms in saying a win for Selby is bad for the game. Yes, it sounds a bit melodramatic, but I stand by it honestly. There's then a bit of a uh, digression about last year, which I'm going to gloss over because it's not... Yeah, he actually says, I digress. Um, there are far more fans offended by Selby's slow play than he's saying than they were offended by what Ronnie did last year. Well, you can't prove that, actually. But anyway, yeah, uh, exactly. uh, I never saw an apology for that six-minute shot against John Higgins. I did see him laugh it off when asked about an interview. He took cheap, childish swipes at Ronnie in the first half of this season, which Ronnie actually... Put... I'm going to gloss over this because I don't care about Ronnie and Selby and all that business. Let's get to the meat of what, what you're actually saying. Yeah. Um, here we go. Okay. When Bingham was out playing him in all departments in that third session, he thought he could still get inside his head by playing on needing five snookers. Oh, this was the thing I was going to bring up, actually. Uh, after everyone else in the theatre was sure he'd concede after Bingham had reached that stage. Given the frame, it had already been a long one as well. Bingham didn't flinch and had an answer for everything in that session. And Selby didn't like it. Well, you don't have to like it if you're a winner. Well, you don't have to like it if you're a winner. You shouldn't. But you should still have some grace and sportsmanship. Isn't the game... Isn't this the game where players call their own foul still? Um, Selby passed off the shot where he got warned as having a brain freeze. Isn't he supposed to be a seasoned pro by now? He was long overdue a warning, and I can't believe it's the first one he's had to my knowledge in front of the TV cameras. I'll wrap up with a cringeworthy celebration before potting the blue in the final frame. John Virgo didn't like it either, and he was spot on. See, this is what I was saying. I didn't hear what, what John said, but he apparently wasn't impressed. Uh, I'm glad Stuart was bold enough to bring up the slow play issue after. There don't seem to be any repercussions for it ever. Selby pointed out that both players had about the same average shot time, so Bingham was no place to call Selby on it. Well, that's because Bingham was dragged so far of his rhythm by Selby's tactics, he ended up having to play that way for significant periods. Richard ends with the words, come on, Murphy. I think we probably could have predicted, <laughs> Richard, yeah, that you yeah, were didn't you need support, to say that. Yeah. You supported Sean. Uh, well, obviously, he's not impressed. To be fair, a lot of people don't enjoy Mark Selby's style of play, and they feel that he does you know, drag, drag matches down to what they like to see, which is, you know, in its personal preference, but sort of fluent play. Uh, what do you, I mean, I did have to cut some of that out because it was a long email, but what, what do you make of that? What, what do people want Mark Selby to do? Do they want him to, you know, take on ridiculous pots that aren't there and, and lose matches as a result? I mean, Mark Selby's made, what, 600 century breaks? Well, nearly Something 700. Like actually, nearly 700. Well, there you go then. And I've said this about him so many times. If you had a player who had made that many century breaks and was obviously that good at playing the fluent side of the game, but didn't have the all-round tactical game to back it up. People would be saying, oh, he needs to go and work on that side of the game. 
Well, Selby has it all. That's why he's a three-time world champion. It might be a four-time world champion by tomorrow. Do people think that to court favour, he should just take a different approach and have less success? I, I just don't understand that thinking at all, to be honest. And I mean, all this stuff about gamesmanship and fist pumping and all the rest of it, I, I find it all very peripheral. I mean, you can't imagine Stephen Hendry being put off by that. Look at Ali Carter. I mean, he basically got barged in the arena by Ronnie O'Sullivan three years ago <laughs> and used it to his advantage. He thought, right, this is great. I've got under this guy's skin if he's resorting to these tactics and controlled the game from that point on. So well, I find I'll... it all a bit peripheral. And I, I just don't like the fact that I, I think a lot of people have it in for Selby and are looking for things to criticise him about that if other players did them would be seen as you know perhaps even positive attributes. Yeah, I'll go back to because uh, this went out of my head. Um, that business last frame on Friday night playing on for the snookers. Mm. It was half eleven at night. Uh, Neil, as Neil said in the studio, people wanted to go to bed. Um, he was doing that. I don't believe he thought he could get the snookers. I think he was doing that definitely planting a seed. It's psychology planting a seed to say this is a hard match. You ain't won this frame yet. You ain't won this match yet. And to me, in a way, that's fair game because it is a it is they are playing a match and it's you know tactics come into it. But at the same time, you know, it kind of felt like we've been here four and a half hours already. Give us a just give us a break, sort of thing. I'm not. I'm never quite sure about this word gamesmanship because they're actually playing a game. Mm. <laughs> are they, are yeah, they not? Yeah, yeah. And just well, within the rules, within the rules, you are allowed to use whatever tactics you like. It is a tactic to just go for blast, blast at long balls. I mean, Mark Williams is doing that during the tournament. That in itself can unsettle people. It's a, it, obviously it's the opposite because it's a very open way of playing. That is a tactic in itself. It's a tactic to roll into the back of the reds on the break-off. Uh, pretty much everything's a tactic you do, actually. Um, what Selby was, was doing, I think, actually, as I said earlier, I think he was sort of going into his own head rather than trying to necessarily drag it out. But here's the thing, OK, and this is to sort of tie in what I said about Sean. Sean in terms of the year he's had, and actually, in some ways, sort of from his childhood as well, you know, he was bullied at school. He's always, I guess, you know, sort of looked for acceptance and found it in the snooker world, and he's found it with the crowd in this tournament. You know, they've embraced him, he's embraced them. Mark Selby had a very, very difficult upbringing, a very humble upbringing. His family had no money. Uh, his father died when he was young. His mother left the family. He was essentially, for a while, left on his own. Do you not think that's why he fights for absolutely everything? Because in the back of his mind, maybe even subconsciously, he's thinking this might all be taken away. I have to fight for every point, for every frame, for every match, for every tournament. And I think that's what, why he is how he is. He's spoken about, you know, I mean, he, when he was young, he, he considered killing himself, you know. Mm, mm. Um, so th this is it's not just another game of snooker. These people are human beings and they have a backstory. And they have reasons for what they do. They have emotions. You know, we sit there sort of dispassionately, and certainly these days on social media, every little thing that happens, people have opinions on and judgments on. But we're not them. We haven't mm. had their lives. And this is why and both of them, I think, are very interesting characters for different reasons. As I say, they were friends when they were young. I think they're still friends now. But they both had journeys, and it's been difficult. And the way they play the game, that's a reflection of that. I mean, I thought that I had a grasp of how important it was to the players and just what it meant to them before I ever worked in snooker. And then about 25 years ago, I started being at tournaments and seeing players and seeing them in the immediate aftermath of matches. And I don't even mean necessarily in press conferences. I'm talking about conversations that you overhear them having with the people that are there, their families, their managers, their coaches, whatever. It's only then that you really grasp just how much this means to all of these guys, and you're right in what you say. They've come from somewhere. Everyone's got a story. Nobody 
has a, as, as simple a life as just going along, taking up snooker, finding they're good at it and everything working out well for them. There's always a story to it. And Sean Murphy actually spoke about this probably about 10 years ago. And I, I, this quote has always stuck with me. It was put to him, oh, you know, you, you've had to come through a lot and you've had you know troubles with your family and you know troubles growing up and all the rest of it. And he was refreshing in what he said about it. He wasn't actually feeling sorry for himself. He said, show me someone who has had a textbook life. And he's absolutely right. Nobody has. And you can't judge people from their attitude and the way they go about things without really understanding every aspect and every nuance of where they've come from. And I think it really applies in the case of both of these two. You can see it in the way they approach things. And for Selby to be criticised uh, in the way he is a lot, when you consider, I mean, how his life could so easily have gone off the rails. And he decided, no, I'm not just going to accept that fate for myself. I'm going to make something of my life. And he's done it so successfully. And sometimes you wonder, is that what people really don't like? They resent people's success and what they've achieved and their dedication because they don't have it themselves. Well, indeed. Well, people will have their own views on all of that. But I definitely think that, you know, we it's, it's, a, it's an age where people do not consider all of that. It's just what they see, they react to and you know, instant opinions and all that so it says us on a podcast, by the way. Mm. <laughs> Can I say one last yeah. thing about that? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Very, very often, isn't it noticeable how the people who are anti-Selby are big O'Sullivan fans? Now, you wonder, does that maybe go back to 2014? But Ronnie O'Sullivan spent the first half of the season playing all needing like 20 snookers and frames and things like that. Well, yeah. And of course, there was the business with Robidoux 25 years ago. Do those people feel that that was wrong? Well, to be fair to Richard, he did address that in his email, but I, I, as I say, it was a yeah. bit, just a bit, bit long, and he, and he did he did describe it as a digression. Listen, people can think whatever they like, but we're just trying to add a bit of context to it. As I yeah. say, as I say, I don't. I think you know, you, you look at the at Selby as a boy, and what he went through, and you look at him now fighting for absolutely everything, and you know, there's a very, very, very clear line between the two. Let's let's have a look then at the final. Um, I've looked at this. Mark Selby, I believe, has played eleven four session matches at the crucible well actually i mean last night was a five session match but you know what i'm saying yeah, yeah, four, yeah. four session matches he's won eight of them they've all been close um you know he lost to higgins in that final i think 18 13 um yeah he he, he uh, and there's been a 17 14 there's been lots of 17 16s a couple of 17 15s and of course the three finals that he won were all pretty close so he's had a lot of close four session matches he's won most of them he seems to be the man for this distance. Um, so for me, he starts favourite. Sean Murphy, though, I do think this crowd now is a dynamic that favours him. I think that will inspire him. The question is, I suppose, can he play the sort of snooker he played last night over a, over four sessions? I mean, it's going to be hard to do that. He, he can do it in bursts, maybe. It's whether those bursts are you know, long enough. I think his safety's been good, actually. He's not yeah, something it has. that he's often often talked about, but that's important. I think it's important for him to win the bad frames as well. There'll be some of those, guaranteed. You'd favour Selby in them. So I guess what I'm saying is, in my mind, Selby starts to favour it, but it's, you, it, it's impossible to say with any certainty what's going to happen here. And talking about how Murphy's safety has improved gives us a chance to mention Fergal O'Brien, because we do on every other podcast, because yeah. he's played a big role in that. He had a word with him. They practice together a lot now in Dublin, and he said to him, look, you need to work on your safety game. And who better to do that with than Fergal, who will you know, battle away till the end of time uh, to try and win a frame? I suppose, look, you don't need to be a genius to figure out what Selby's going to try and do here. He'll know, as we were saying earlier, when Murphy is in his flow, he's as good as anyone and is capable of anything. Selby is quite clearly going to try and stop him do that. And there's nobody better at doing that. So that, that will be his game plan. But of course, 
just because he wants the game to be played that way, it doesn't mean it's going to be. I think what Murphy needs to do is play to his strengths. And we talk about his scoring. But I think more than anything, what we remember about 2005 is his long game and the magnificent reds he was knocking in. Now, if he pops a few of those early on in the match, that puts a bit of pressure on Selby's safety, actually. And that maybe gives him more of a chance of stopping Selby from stopping him, as it were. So I think the early frames could be very important in that regard. Murphy can't let Selby build up a lead because that's going to be very, very difficult to turn around if he does. But there's going to be no surprises in this final because I think nobody would be surprised now if Murphy was to win it. I do agree with you. I think Selby starts as a slight favourite. I think it's going to be close again. Wouldn't it be incredible, by the way, in this only match of the entire season that there's a full crowd there if they were rewarded with a final frame finish mm. to the World Championship in the Crucible. It's about time. Come on, it's been 19 years well, since I, we yeah. had one. I said that uh, quite early in the championship, there was a sort of fairy tale feel to it. I think that possibly when McGill beat O'Sullivan that big night, and it's been building up to, I mean, Oliver Dowden, the British culture secretary, yeah. was there the other day, and they're all very impressed with everything that's been done. It's gone out, gone without a hitch. It's been, and that's because of all the work that's been done, let's be clear, by World Stuka Tour. I ran an email from our friend in Canada, actually, David Burney, on this. He said, um, what a great tournament we've had. And on the eve of the final, the climax of the season, I have to say, all I have to say is bravo for snooker. This is the golden age. Great talent on the table. There's a standard is very high. And who could have predicted a Selby Murphy final? Listening to the podcast, you're getting more and more listeners from all corners of the world. With a sports streaming service like DAZN, people not living in Britain or Europe can tune in to watch great live snooker action. The handling of the pandemic, making sure everyone is safe and able to provide great entertainment for those of us who could be stuck at home during COVID. Bravo, just fantastic work. Also, a great podcast here with the two, with you two to provide a wide range of snooker fans insight to the game as well. So the great niche things related to snooker. Well done. Snooker's in a great place with hopefully everything getting close to what it was before this pandemic. All there is left to say is see you next year at the Crucible. Well, I certainly hope that's true, David. Um, I mean, that will be something to, to go back there. And this is, as I say, this is kind of Light at the end of the tunnel, this final, isn't it? You know, seeing the scenes we're going to see over the next two days. And that's why really, I mean, I'd, I'll be very clear. I couldn't care less who wins. I'd like them both. Um, when I when lockdown started, I did a couple of little podcasts. I was going to do a sort of series of players. What are you up to during lockdown? It became apparent to me that they'd be quite samey after a while because basically people are just stuck at home watching Netflix, basically, mm. and, and with their families. And the but Crucible the, Classics as well that were on at that time. But the two people who I contacted were... Sean Murphy and Mark Selby because I knew if I rang them up they would just do it because that's the sort of people they are you know mm. they're, pro they're proper snooker people they love be they love playing snooker they love the fact that they've ended up as I say from being in those junior events in Leicester now they're top professionals they represent the sport well in themselves um, so I'm going to enjoy it I think that's the thing isn't it just enjoy mm. the final we've, we've made it to the end we've got two proper players there two former champions Selby can get to four Murphy can get to two what is your prediction then? What, who, who's going to win? What's the score? All of that? Yeah, I think Selby, just very close. 18, 15, 16, 17, something like that. I think that has to be my prediction for it. The main thing, of course, is because of who's in the final, we won't have any of that Curse of the Crucible talk next year. So bravo for that, really. You need to let that go. You know, I, 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 says, says the Triple Crown man. I didn't bring it up. Well, OK, well, if you brought that up and you've brought it up twice now. Yeah. Des Kane from Eurosport wrote, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. wrote a very good piece in the week. Uh, apparently, something was said on the BBC regarding Stuart Bingham and how you know how important it would be to complete the Triple Crown because obviously he's won the World Championship and the Masters. UK Championship would complete it under their under their metric. Um, 
And, it, and Des was pointing out he'd much rather be a double world champion because that's a, a bigger deal. And this is the thing, and we've seen it in this tournament. I don't want to go on about this again. But the idea that there's an equivalence between those three tournaments, the Masters and the UK Championship are great events, the Masters in particular, because it's, it's kept its sort of format over the years. The UK's changed. They're great events to win, and they're great events to have on your CV. There's absolutely no equivalence. When people say, how many Triple Crown titles have you won? It's a nonsense, okay? World titles, that's what you look at. Then you look at everything else. And that's why this is a big couple of days. Because if Sean Murphy gets to two, he won't get to four triple crown titles. He'll get to two world titles. That's the important thing. There is no equivalence between the three events. This is our one major. And Des makes the point in golf and tennis. Yeah. They don't have a world championship. I mean, they have events they call the world championship, but not an established leading event. That's why they have these, these grand slams and these majors. They sort of make up for the fact they don't have that one marquee event. We do. This is it. This is it. But the thing is, in those sports as well, it is a big thing to win all four of the majors. But there's a huge difference there. I mean, in tennis, obviously, they're played on different surfaces. You've got players who have been great on grass, can't do it on clay and vice versa. So they're played around the world in different climates. There's a big difference between them. And it, it tests, you know, all the different all round formats and forms of tennis that there are. Same in golf as well. The four majors, again, you've got different climates at play. I mean, the Open is played in very different uh, weather conditions to most US Opens. The courses are set up in different ways, different styles of golf. So that's why it exists in those sports. And this thing about being an all-time great, you know, people bandy this phrase around. It's not a real thing. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's not like a knighthood or something, you know, that you're conferred <laughs> with and it becomes a title. It only exists in people's heads, you know, that and people have different views on what is an all-time great. A lot of people would regard Jimmy White as an all-time great. And famously, he never won the world championship. So, you know, people have their perceptions of what it is. There are certain players who obviously everyone would put in the all-time great category. Stuart Bingham would love to be in that category. Of course he would. But the, the, the idea and the logic that somehow his claims to be in that category would have been enhanced more by winning a UK championship, say, this year, than by winning the world championship this year, really can't see that logic at all. And he will be far more gutted over losing this, mm. you know, much, much more gutted than he would have been if he'd lost 10-9 in the UK final on a respot from 9-0 up. Believe me, it would mean a huge amount more to him. So uh, it's a debate that rumbles on. Well, not on this podcast. I think we've, we've <laughs> both agreed on it. Um, OK, so the, I'm hoping the final will go to a decider. That would be such a reward. It would be brilliant, yeah. yeah. For everyone, you know. I mean, but uh, that's asking a lot, I know. But um, I, do, I do think because of his four-session experience, Selby... You know, it's got to be the favourite, and I, I, I feel he he will win, and I feel possibly won't be quite as close as you think, but we'll see. Um, they played each other in the semis back in 2007, and yeah. uh, the the agreement beforehand was because they were good friends. You know, they'd grown up together. Whoever loses will stay on to support the other in the final. That was the agreement, but it was 17-16 uh, to Mark and Sean. Quite understandably said, "Look, I just can't stay here. I've got to go, I've got to go home. Perfectly fine." And both, he actually, Mark told that, that story on this podcast. I've inter- interviewed both of them. You can go back to the, I was going to say back issues. That's not right, is it? Back episodes. Uh, interview both of them. If you want to find out about their, how they grew up and their careers. Paul Collier as well, he's ref in the final. He's been on. Um, so that's it. If you've got if you want something to do before the final starts, you listen, finish listen to this. We'll be back after the final, uh, Tuesday, I guess, um, to... Mm-hmm. Just look back on the final and look back on the championship. Uh, so let us know your thoughts. Snooker scene podcast at mail.com. Snooker scene podcast at mail.com. Good luck to Mark and Sean. I hope they put on a show for everybody. Um, and whoever you're supporting, you know, I hope you enjoy it. And, you know, it's, it is a sort of 
almost a sort of horrible cliche to say either way snooker wins isn't it but it's but this year it's true i think because as i say we've had we've carried on through the year but it's been and we've seen some great matches great tournaments actually but it's been quite soulless without the crowds we've now got over two days it's going to be a lively crowd in hopefully full certainly for the last session what a kind of victory that is for the sport and of course we're helping other sports and other indoor entertainments hopefully get back to normal later in the year so that as david said from canada next year we can go to the crucible hopefully as normal you know and all this is some sort of distant memory and, and you, you're left with that sort of strange thing of in years to come having to explain to people when they see footage of this year why people are wearing masks and why it's why they're all spaced out hopefully it's something we'll talk about in the past tense uh so that's it from me good luck to mark and sean as i say in the final and yeah We'll see you on Tuesday to rake over the coals of it. Goodbye, bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.